Amen. Uh, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, we're going to look at verses 1 through 40. We're not going to uh, read the whole thing. I'm going to kind of skip around, and uh, I trust that you had the opportunity maybe to read ahead, and if not, you can um, maybe read a little bit more later if you like, either way. Hebrews 11, and what I'm going to do is start at the end of chapter 10 and read verse 39. I'll let you know what I'm going to read as we go. So Hebrews 11, we'll start the verse right before that. These are the words of God. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Skip to verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Skip to verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And now skip to verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and Dave of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness they were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. Uh, they went out about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we rejoice this evening because you gave us this tremendous gift of faith. And when you gave us that gift, you brought us into the blessings of your covenant. 
We are full of gladness because this gift of faith aims to glorify you and put us to work in your world. We ask now that you would help us understand by giving us illumination. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's uh, definitely good to be back with you all again. I am uh, thankful for Brother John providing some wonderful teaching on abolitionism last week, and I trust that that was a blessing. Uh, it is very, very much important, uh, a very key central aspect of our ideology here, and so I'm glad the opportunity to, to discuss that came. So thanks, John, for doing a, a tremendous job. So uh, we are back in our study of Hebrews, and we are inching towards the end of the book. Um, I decided to go ahead and tackle the whole chapter here because it all fits together in really a nice little package, and I think the emphasis of the writer is consistent throughout, as you will see. So uh, at any rate, we're going to just jump right into it. So if you recall from a couple weeks ago, uh, chapter 10 contains a whole lot of stuff regarding the covenant of God and its accompanying judgments, its sanctions. There are blessings for obedience, there are curses for disobedience. So within space and time, right, within history, Jesus brings those judgments to the world to people who transgress his covenant. So it is, after all, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what we're told in verse 31 of chapter 10. So the writer then went on to remind the recipients um, that they have exhibited faithful living before and they should continue down that path. Keeping, keep in mind the coming judgment of Christ in AD 70, um, he tells them, in light of that, don't shrink back. Do not shrink back. And verse 39 of chapter 10 says that, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. Remember those who were tempted to go back to the temple, back to the sacrifices. They were the ones forsaking the assembly. They were the ones that were walking away from the faith, the covenant. They were going to be destroyed. Um, we are not like that, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So remember that there weren't uh, chapter divisions. Um, the writer, presumably Paul, maybe not, maybe Paul and some others, but whoever was writing it, they didn't have chapter divisions and verse numbers. Um, so keep in mind that the thought shifts now to the issue of faith. Now, chapter 11 is commonly known as the Hall of Faith. And for very good reason. There is an emphasis on the faithful ones of old. And what we must do is learn from their example. Men and women in the Old Covenant aren't only there for our example, but they are most certainly important for our consideration. So this hall of faith, and I didn't read all that earlier, but we'll walk through it very quickly if you want. Um, this whole hall of faith has a whole host of people. You have Cain and Abel who were brought up in verse 4. You have Enoch in verse 5. Noah is mentioned in verse 7. Abraham and Sarah take up some space in verses 8 to 12 and then even to 17 to 19. Isaac is mentioned. Jacob is mentioned. Joseph in verse 22. Moses uh, is in 23 through 29. Now, there is one thing that's mentioned here that's not a person, but uh, the walls of Jericho are mentioned as an act of faith on Israel's part. Um, that's mentioned uh, in verse 30. Rahab, the harlot, right? She's mentioned in verse 31. Gideon, Samson, Samuel, the prophets, and others, they're all mentioned in verse 32. 
So the writer has built his argument to the point that he doesn't have the space. Um, so he, he goes into their actions next, and he talks about uh, uh, some of the things that the other saints had done and some of the things that were done against them. Now these saints, they conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness. Uh, they obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. Kids, do you remember a story of lions? Who was thrown into the lion's den? Do you remember? It starts with a D. Daniel, right. So Daniel's mentioned here. Um, there's also this mentioning of someone who quenched the power of fire. Who was thrown into the fiery furnace and lived? Moses. No, Daniel. That's all right, though. <laughs> That's good. Um, some, of, some of them escaped the edge of the sword. Some of them became mighty in war. And some of them put foreign armies to flight. That's verses 33 and 34. So on and on we go. We have this uh, basically a rehearsal of the Old Testament narrative and, and bringing on all these things. Many were beaten and imprisoned. Uh, many were stoned and sawn in two. Their afflictions and persecutions abounded. The world, we are told, was not worthy of them, was not and is not worthy of them. That's verse 38. And also in verse 38, many of these people, they wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, the text says. But what are we to think of these destitute men? The world mocks them, clearly, but what should we think of them? Well, look at verse 39 at the end of the chapter. And all these, all these people, all, all these people who have endured all this stuff, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. They gained approval through their faith. They didn't receive it all, right? They didn't, they didn't get the new covenant. They didn't get the kingdom of God. They didn't get what we got, namely the death and resurrection and kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. They get it, of course, now they receive that reward, but they didn't have it then. Um, they had faith in it. They looked forward to it, uh, but it wasn't something they themselves uh, would receive. We are told in these verses, particularly verse 13, that they died in faith without, that's the key word, without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, a quick note on this, all right? We need to talk about this. They were seeking the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's what they were looking for. That's the better country. That's the heavenly one we see in verse 16. Um, the city that God is building, the city of God, the new Jerusalem of the book of Revelation, that's the house that Jesus is Lord over and building that Moses worked in that we talked about earlier in the book of Hebrews. All of that is the people of God in the new covenant marked by the kingdom of Christ on earth as it is in heaven. They were exiles, but you need to know something. We are not <laughs> exiles. So many appeal to this passage without context. Oh, we're just roaming along earth as exiles. No, no, no. The exiles were the people of old who waited for what we now experience. So they were exiles. We are not exiles. Um, they awaited what the Messiah was to bring. They believed God 
could do it, and God would do it, and God blessed them for their obedience, for their faith. Now, why say all of that here? What is clear from this passage is that faith and obedience go hand in hand. Don't miss that. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. Faith manifests itself in obedience to Christ. Now, before I dig into that connection, I want to lay a a better foundation for you, lest I be called a heretic. (laughs) What the Bible makes clear in places like this, and especially in a place like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace we have been saved through faith, right? And not in ourselves. And it's a gift, right? That Faith is a gift of God. Um, faith is absolutely a gift that God gives to His people. Faith, true faith that is alive and well, is something that God gives to men. That's, what, that's a God-given thing. We do not manufacture faith that pleases God, and that's because we cannot manufacture it. Men, as unregenerate covenant breakers, cannot meet the requirements of God's law, so they must have saving grace. That's the gift of repentance and faith. And when Christ's righteousness is then imputed to us, we are restored to God's righteousness. And all of that serves the purpose of now what we would call sanctifying grace, which means that through the law of God, we are enabled by the Spirit to grow in righteousness and develop the world into that which Christ requires through faithful obedience in every aspect of life. So don't miss that. Unregenerate men can't obey the law of God. They are condemned by it. God gives saving grace, the gift of repentance and faith. And what happens in that moment? You, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. Your sin is imputed back to Him. Um, that's that's uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the great exchange in Luther's language. Um, so once, once you have that gift, now you have sanctifying grace. And that sanctifying grace is the Spirit empowers us to be faithful to God and His law, and then we get, to get, we get to pick up our shovel and go to work, right? We get to grab the tools and start building things. But notice that none of this happens because we decided to make it happen. We are not able to obey Christ until He makes us obey Him. And that's accomplished through regeneration. So you must be born again, right? That's, that's the message. You must be born again. So, if, so faith is a gift. It's not something that we earn, but it's something that we receive. And we do all of that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we must also make a careful distinction between faith that lives and moves and faith which is dead. Now, as Calvinists, we confess that faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. But we also confess that God doesn't give people dead faith, right? He doesn't give them faith that is just dead and and doesn't do anything. That's really what the whole argument, well, part of the argument of the book of James is all about. Um, True faith is faith that lives. It's alive. The faith that God gives to people in order to justify a sinner is a seed that then grows into a harvest. So when when God when the whole when the Holy Spirit when the Spirit of God regenerates a sinner, he turns them from dead people, un- unable to obey the law, into very much alive people who are now capable of his service. That's the transaction. Which means that when the seed is planted, we can be sure that God doesn't plant fake seeds. 
He doesn't plant fake seeds into somebody. He doesn't, he, he doesn't give people a seed of faith and it's dead. It'll never grow. And then he slaps the justified label on it and then he hopes for the best. No, God justifies that which he has resurrected. And that which he has resurrected, that's us, is given a true faith that will produce fruit. It just will. So the faith that God gives is real. Now let me explain this another way. The Reformers taught us a threefold distinction regarding faith. Noticia, which is information, knowledge. Um, Essensu, which is like belief or agreement. And fiducia, fiducia, uh, trust, loyalty, confidence, commitment. So there's a difference in these stages. You have sort of this information, this knowledge about something or someone. Then you have this agreement with it. And then, then there's this third aspect where it's just your full-on loyalty or trust or confidence in it, your commitment to what it is. Now, no one is saved merely by having information about God, clearly. The devil has far more information than we do, and he, was, he will be cast into the lake of fire. So simply having information won't suffice. Now, the second part pertains to this assent to that information. So we believe it and we agree with it. We, we know the information, and we agree with what, it, what that information is. Now, this too can be tricky, because many people agree with certain aspects of Jesus' teaching, um, but they too will be cast in the lake of fire, right? Lord, Lord, did we not do all these works? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. The third aspect brings this whole package all together. When God gives someone the gift of faith, They receive knowledge of their sin, knowledge of their Savior. They agree with it. They understand it. And not only do they agree with it, they have confidence in it. Now, you can can see this in in the story of Abraham. That's why I had Brother John read from the book of Romans there. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So faith, faith says amen to Christ. So we, we say amen a lot around here, which is good when we're reading scripture, we sing a song. Amen is that, yes, absolutely, sign, seal, delivered, it's in Christ, absolutely, you know, we affirm. That's what faith is. Faith affirms Christ and his salvation. It, it accepts the fact that we've sinned, that we've fallen short of the glory of God. It accepts that the law has pronounced us as a status of lawbreakers. True faith accepts then, in response to all of that, Christ's work as our substitute, Christ's atonement as our substitute. And so because of all that, it accepts in gratitude our work of obedience, the obedience of faith, and the very means of furthering the kingdom of God in history. So true faith, true faith, the alive and not dead faith, accepts that there is only one path to salvation, and not only do we accept that path, we walk in it. We walk it. We, we walk on that path. The grace of faith, to quote the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's instrumental. It's a gift of Christ that we receive and we apply. Now, in terms of our passage here, we need to look at the verse, the first verse there to get a grip on what the writer is arguing. So look at verse 1 again. We've kind of been hopping around. but Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Notice how faith is grounded. It's the assurance of things hoped for, or as some translations put it, the substance of things hoped for. 
The word here is actually related to the issue of a guarantee. It's a reality. It's a, it's a confidence. It's unshakable. Faith is God's gift of grace. And that faith, it's not blind. It's not foolish. It's not wishful thinking. It's, it's a guarantee. It's a confidence. And it pertains to things hoped for. What do you hope for? Things past or things future? You, no one would say, I really hope it doesn't rain yesterday. <laughs> it's future-oriented. Hope is future-oriented. Um, faith is also, the text says, the conviction of things not seen. It's persuasion. It's evidence of things that we, we can't even see. So faith persuades us to trust with more than our eyeballs. It, it persu- it, Paul talks about this walking by faith, not by sight, which was actually in that song we just sang earlier. So in other words, faith is an entirely robust instrument. Don't, I'm going to try to give you a bigger picture of faith than what is normally passes in evangelicalism. It's this entirely robust instrument of God. So we tend to tie faith down to something related to epistemology, which is just how we know things. Faith becomes this sort of mystical, metaphysical object that's out there. You know, yeah, I guess, I believe, sort of thing. But faith, it's not just related to mental assent. You you know, I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. You you thought that in your head, right? And in your heart, because the Holy Spirit is compelled to trust it, to trust Christ. Um, But it's not just a mental thing. It isn't just related to epistemology, how we, how we understand and know things to be what they are. Here's, here's the bigger picture part here. Faith is ethical in nature. Faith is uniquely tied to the future and things not seen. It's tied to the law of God, as Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew 23, 23. I'll, here's, my, here's what I would say faith is, all right? Just to, I'll repeat it, but... Faith is a supernatural grace given to men in order to turn them into obedient subduers. Faith is a supernatural grace given to men in order to turn them into obedient subduers. That's what faith is. Please do not miss the emphasis of the chapter. Faith sees the world through this covenantal lens. It opens things up so you can now see It sees the world as God sees the world because it's tied to the issue of ethics and our calling in the Dominion Covenant. Now, we'll come back to that in a second. Sadly, in today's evangelical world, faith has become this wishy-washy pile of mush and gush on the floor. It has become this sort of emotional sentimentalism that is divorced from any real and meaningful purpose in the here and now. And, and this is because there's this false dichotomy between law and grace. The false dichotomy between faith and obedience stems from a false dichotomy between law and grace. So when we divorce faith from action and we fail to distinguish between a dead faith and a live faith, we fail to give the fuller picture of the gospel. And here's the thing. <clears throat> when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's law word, their action was an act of faith. But it was an act of dead faith. They believed the lie of the serpent, right? and that's what Paul says in Romans. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They sought to be their own God in their own law, on their own lawless terms. 
This is a dead faith, and more specifically, it's a demonic faith. Now, the reason I bring this up now is because this demonic faith is still with us, and it is a demonic faith that desires to fashion a social order built on lawlessness. Men who hate God are driven by an inverse dominion covenant, right? They want evil and autonomy to rule, and they want it to happen right now. They are functionally these upside-down and backwards post-millennialists. So, so as you think about your faith in the world, real-time application of God's Word to all of life, just know that there is a real-time application for all of life view that's out there that's built on autonomy, and it's, it's from the devil. It's, it's, it's a demonic faith. Now, the Bible says that the only way the only way that we overcome the world, and John tells us this in 1 John 5, 4, is through our faith. Victory in the world comes by faith. I've always wondered why, I mean, I understand contextually and exegetically why John would say that, but it's interesting that he says that. What, what is the thing that overcomes the world? What, what victory do we have in this world? He says our faith. Our faith. He could have said, well, you know, substitutionary atonement, or he could have listed Jesus is on his throne. He could have said all that stuff, but our victory is our faith, which means that our faith is a condemnation of the autonomous order of rebellious men. Uh, what we do with our faith brings victory in the world. Our faith affirms that God is the creator and he's the judge, and it is our faith that is grounded in reality certainty, and true and abundant life. That's why when we go to a place like George Mason and we're talking to um, uh, epistemologically confused college students, we'll give them a nice title, and they don't know, I mean, they, they, you know, nothing matters, and, and that's, they're emphasizing that because to them that matters a, a great deal. Um, but for us, like, we are grounded in reality. We have a faith that grounds us in that which is actually true, not what we wish to be true, not, not this figment of our, of our rebellious imagination. Um, we are going to a place like that, and we are having conversations with people and saying, look, what you're doing in this worldview that you're bringing to me, it's terrible. <laughs> it doesn't work. It's, it, it can't function. It, it gives you a lack of consistency to say the most nicest thing about it. Um, so that's the reality of faith that we have. The, the faith of the serpent expresses itself in disobedience. The faith of the seed of the woman expresses itself in obedience. That's why we need Jesus. We need Jesus' obedience on our behalf so that we can then actually obey him. Because apart from him, we are following Satan's marching orders. So we can't separate faith and obedience without destroying them and giving more power to the enemies of God. Now, true belief and trust in God isn't for the esoteric elites. True faith isn't just you know, for those who have this secret Gnostic knowledge. It's really quite simple. A rejection of God is idiocy. It's foolishness. 
The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's why there has to be this veneer of respectability with all humanistic religions. You know, they are unwilling because they are made in the image of God to suffer too much shame for their rebellion. So they dress it up with pious language and colorful language like love and tolerance so that people will, you know, join in on the rebellion. But we have a robust biblical faith And having a robust biblical faith isn't just for those with multiple letters behind their name, you know, astrophysics and rocket scientists, right? True biblical faith doesn't come down to us from the ivory towers of a society. It comes from the Spirit of God who plants it in the hearts of men. So yes, it is supernatural, but it's also very practical, and it deals with real-world, real-time stuff. It's about hope for the future. It's about assurance for things that we can't even see right now. It's believing that God does desire to accomplish the Great Commission, for example. Now, I want to talk about this future orientation of faith. Our faith is in the God who not only created all things, that's verse 3, but also owns all things, past, present, and future. This gift of faith is tied to our unity with Christ, our union with Christ, who is seated on high, who rules and reigns over all things and over all history. So so notice the connection, especially here in verse 3. Biblical faith is couched inside time and space. This directly contradicts the escapist views of faith that basically you can get anywhere you go. It's not something we get now. Um, and it just sits there inside of you, and you wait for heaven. Faith is not for heaven, it's for now. Because God has a plan for redemptive history. Any of his actions that pertain to redemption, for example, the dispensing and giving of faith to his people, all of that must necessarily find its resolution and context in the real world, in history. And that's because Christians own history. Christians own history because God rules over history. Faith concerns providence and it concerns predestination, two things that we say amen to. Now, no point in this passage is there a lauding of these people for their holding fast to a vision of heaven. Sort of the anti-material spiritual thing. They were not vindicated by their understanding of heaven. They, They were vindicated by the promises of God and their confidence in them. Notice that all of the things in this passage, from Cain and Abel onward, all of that, all of that had to do with actual things that happened in actual history. At no point in this passage are we to be commended for our belief, you know, in, in the streets of gold, though we do believe in heaven, that it will come to earth, and we will live there for eternity with God. But faith has to be contextualized for here, for us here in the now. It's, it's about past, it's about present, it's about future. And this is because true biblical faith, listen, it's an advancing faith. Apostasy is a retreat, it's a withdrawal from truth. It's a, you're getting away from truth and embracing that which is evil. But it's, you're getting away from God and His law word. But true faith, on the other hand, it's, it's movement, it's progress, It's this dominion-oriented advancement in the world. Now, faith has a backbone, and and faith, faith is this courageous boldness. So our faith is meant to extirpate the darkness in the world, not retreat from it. 
So know that about your faith. Because we sort of like, we tie it down to this individualistic thing. Like, I'm not, and we say this with so much, you know, ego. I am not into religion. I'm into a relationship with Jesus. And so our faith gets reduced to these sort of sentimental emotions with God. And, and it's just kind of me and Jesus. Jesus take the wheel, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but it's, faith is meant to extirpate the darkness. It's, it's meant to push it back. It's meant to advance. It's not meant to retreat and, and sort of just keep to ourselves. Now, now <clears throat> think about it for a second. We've already established several times over the fact that Israel, like Israel going into the land of Canaan, so the Hebrews were about to advance upon the world. That's the connection the, the writer makes. So by extension, we too are called to advance in the world under the terms and conditions of the Great Commission. What other encouragement could there possibly be for Christians called to this task than the encouragement that comes from the faithful ones, the faithful saints who have gone before us in order to do the very same thing. Now, to make an under, a great understatement here, we live in a time of great social upheaval. Our culture is dis- disheveled and sloven. It, we, what we don't need is the pietism that says that faith is merely ascribing to a creed or a confession, as good as those can be. What we don't need is this anti-intellectual, positive, encouraging, K-love-only type of Christianity. We are called to war, and at no point in this passage are we told to just be nice to people. Should we be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Yes. Should we exhibit godliness? Without a doubt. But faith is not a squishy, feel-good clump of niceties. Real faith the true biblical faith that is alive and well and ready to get to work is a faith that works. Faith is not morbid introspection, where, and we're guilty of this in the Reformed world, oh, woe is me, I'm a sinner, I'm a worm, and we just sit there and sulk in our depression every day. I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Yes, and you are sinfully doing that. <laughs> you, you're... Um, It's not just sins of commission, it's sins of omission. Now you're failing to move. You're failing to get off your couch. You're failing to do something. The gift of faith is the raising up of men to life so that they can live for God's glory. They believe that God is, and they believe enough to actually do the work of the kingdom. Look at verse 6 again. And with faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. You cannot please God without this type of faith. You have to believe that God is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek them. It is not, we are not talking about a belief in the unknown. It is not a blind faith. It's not a belief that God may be. It's a belief that God is. God is. The faith we are seeing in this passage is a faith that puts the demands of God over above everything else. The demands of God. Examine your heart. Are the demands of God on your life, do they take precedent over everything else? None of the people listed here lived their best life now. (laughs) They didn't. You may, in fact, be called to martyrdom. You may be called to literally lay down your life for the sake of the kingdom. 
There is no guarantee that your life will be marked by ease and comfort. How could it? How can that be the case when you are putting the demands of God ahead of what you want? And if God demands that we come to Him by faith and believe in Him and that He is and that He does reward us because we are seeking Him, that's not an idle faith. An idle faith is completely contradiction. It's a contradiction in terms. And another question, if we won't even believe God is, how can we expect to do anything in the world for His glory? Now, making this even more down to earth for us as Cross and Crown Church, one of the things one of the things that we have to continually keep in focus is the fact that all of our actions here and now will be shaping the future everything we are building something that we pray will outlast us that's what faith does the i mean i just for the life of me you think about abraham God promised him this stuff. Did he even really get to see it? No. He didn't see it. And if we're promised that God desires to disciple these United States of America, we may not see it. We may not. But I can tell you what we can see the next decade, the next 20 years, and what we do now matters for that. And the reason Christianity is so impotent right now is because we just don't care about the future right now. We don't care. We are so apathetic about what could be because we put all our eggs in this pre-mill basket that we, we don't want to do anything. And why do you think there are churches even in this area that call us brothers and sisters, but they don't want to partner with us? They, they won't go to the mill. They won't be on the streets. They won't. I'll tell you why. Because they want to be impotent. They want to be irrelevant. And the reason they want this is because that's the type of faith they have. They have faith in that God will protect them in their little church buildings all the while the world is on fire and they can't seem to find a fire extinguisher. And I, and I say that not to discourage you or even necessarily to, to lob stones in their direction. I mean, it's, I'm hoping this is an encouragement. The, the prophets, they didn't win the Nobel Peace Prize. Moses did not walk around with a ton of encouragement cards. You know, on the outside of the tabernacle, they had an encouragement box. They didn't. Complaint box, probably, but not an encouragement box. You and I may feel alone from time to time, and that's going to be painful. But ultimately, what are we doing here? We are building something that will outlast us, and we pray that it will impact the culture around us. Listen, <clears throat> every single action done by man is an expression of his religious presuppositions. Every single action that's done by anybody on this planet is done because of religious presuppositions. People always do what their presupposed faith convictions tell them to do. Sodomy is an expression of religious faith. The government school system is an expression of religious conviction. Everything that happens all around us sets forth a religion. And what we must do as faithful ones is recognize it, call it for what it is, and trust God to deal with it. So when we read a passage like this, what we must not do is be impressed with these men and women. The point is not to have you pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps and, you know, go do bold things for God this week, which maybe you should. The point is, rather, that God does amazing things in a world who hates him when people are enamored by him and moved by faith. 
of these people were moved by faith in various ways. Their faith produced fruit in lots of different ways. But the underlying issue here is Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, he's our King, and his atonement has put, a, put us right with God. And when he gives us faith, he gives us a faith that is a mandate for movement, a mandate for action as, Christ's, uh, as Christ conquers history and his campaign marches forward. So it's not this feel-good epistemology. It's a whole world and life view that spurs us onward as Christ's soldiers in a world that needs to be conquered for the gospel. And so onward we must go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that at times we have tried to limit the faith you have given us. We have been sometimes more eager to be about our will instead of being conformed to yours. We know and trust that you, Jesus, will forgive our sins because you are faithful. You are the faithful one. So help us, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit to be faithful ones, people like those who have gone before us in order to further the glory of your Son here on earth as it is in heaven. Grant us favor as we labor here in our community. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.